So I'll go to 1 John chapter 3, if you would, please. 1 John chapter 3, excited to keep talking about this amazing book, uh, 1 John. So hope the Lord's been touching your heart. There are still a few seats up here. If you need some as you're walking in, feel free to grab one of these. Speaking of uh, technical challenges, uh, all these devices that we have, these tech devices everywhere, they're great, aren't they? Most of the time. Most of the time. But as I mentioned, when those challenges come, it's so frustrating, particularly when something is not compatible. You know, there's the whole PC and Mac thing and trying to find things that are compatible with this and that. And it's gotten a little better these days. You can kind of go back and forth with a lot of that. But, or, you know, when you get your phones or the computers and they don't have the little ports that you're looking for, you know, or like iPhone came out with the new ports and you're trying to plug in your earbuds and where does this go? There's no more of these little ports. Some things are just incompatible. And no matter how hard you try, you can't fit a little round thing into a square thing. It's just not going to work. It's just incompatible. This is kind of our theme here this morning, if you will. And this is... uh, this is important for us to, to look at. It's our first uh, note there on your, on your notes. If you haven't got some, they're back in the back or on your app. You can look at it that way on the outline. But this is a part of our theme. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. But first, really, sin is incompatible with being a Christian. It's just incompatible with Christianity. And I think we would all agree with that statement. Sin is incompatible with Christianity. I've heard people evaluate somebody and, you know, they're, they're talking about somebody that we both know and they'll say something like, or, or somebody that I don't know, but they're trying to explain to me, and they, they'll say something like, I think he or she is a Christian. I, I think they're a Christian. Now, when, they, when, when you or I, I've made that same statement, you just kind of assume something about somebody, I think they're a Christian. Why would we make that statement? We're making an assumption based on something outward. Uh, No man can see anyone else's heart. We don't know the the motives of people's heart. We don't know deep down what's going on. So we're making an an assumption based on something outward. There were attitudes, and there are attitudes and actions that give off the impression that somebody has been with Jesus, as it says in the book of Acts there. There's just... There's just something about the attitudes and actions of a Christian. And usually those things aren't anger. Usually those things aren't stealing. They aren't drug abuse. They aren't drunkenness. Those are not the things we would say, now that person's a Christian. That, that's just I, just, I can tell. Those just Why? Why is it the righteous things are the things that we look at and say, I, I think that that person might be a Christian? Because unrighteousness is just not what we would expect from a Christian. It's incompatible with Christian, the Christian life. But that's not what the Gnostics would have said way back when John was writing this letter. And it's a reason he needed to write this letter. And, part, and today especially, he's going to deal with that concept. See, the Gnostics' teaching allowed them to do things like get drunk, or just do whatever they wanted to do, live in anger all the time, beat up on everybody verbally and 
be rude and all that kind of stuff. And no big deal. You can do all of that, do anything you want to do, and still be called a good Christian. Still, still be, everybody could say, you know God. You obviously know God. And just to be clear, there are still people today in churches who would tell us the same thing. That our sinful actions don't really matter to God. And all that matters is your heart. All that matters is that you're sincere. All that matters is that you have, you've asked Jesus to come in your heart. But the great apostle here is going to help us take a logical look at sin. And really how it's impossible to claim that a true believer could have a life that's characterized by sin. Now, he's not saying that good works or not doing sin is something that gets you to heaven. I want to keep clarifying that. But what he is saying is, if somebody truly has accepted Jesus, it's, you're not going to have this mentality. Your life is going, not going to be characterized by sin. And here's the first point that he makes. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Let's all go there. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So this is one of the definitions of sin in the Bible. Sin is a transgression of the law or a violation of the law. So God draws a line here. He draws a line and says, as soon as you walk over that line, you have sinned. This is my standard, this is my law, and it's as simple as that. We tame it, and we call it by all sorts of names, stepping over that, law, that line. We call it an accident, but God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a defect, God calls it a disease. Man calls it an error, God calls it enmity. Man calls it liberty, God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle, God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake, God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness, but God calls it willfulness. We know where the line is, so often we know where God has drawn the line. But simply put, sin is just stepping over that. It is violating God's perfect standard. But here's what we need to understand. That standard that God set, that line that God drives, is a reflection of the character and the will of God himself. So any act of sin is an act against the law, and any act against the law is an act against God himself. David knew that, the King David in the Old Testament. Here's what he said when he was confessing his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against thee, to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now, now David was not suggesting that his sin hadn't hurt other people too. But at its deepest level, a sin is something that is a rebellion against God. It's against him and him only. It is the refusal to come under the authority of God. Every time we cross that line, it's just saying, God, I don't want your authority in my life. It's a creature who's refusing to submit to his creator. So here's the point John's making, the apostle. How can a Christian continue on in a lifestyle of transgressing the law day after day after day after day and not think that that's a problem? 
and not think that I'm hurting God, but it's no big deal. The Gnostics tried to preach that message. They put themselves really above the law of God. They tried to make themselves feel better about sin and created a doctrine that allowed them to sin without guilt. As I mentioned before, their doctrine, their teaching was there's spirit and then there's matter, flesh, if you will. And everything that is matter, everything you can see here on this earth is just matter and it's evil. Matter is evil, spirit is good. And so there, at one point, if you're special enough to get this special knowledge, there's that spark of the divine in you and it sparks with this special little knowledge that you'll, you might get. And as soon as you get that, your spirit rises to be with God. And then all of a sudden, so now your spirit's here, but your, your, your body is still here. But anything that happens on this earth has no bearing at all in the spirit world. So you can do whatever you want in this body. It's all evil anyway. And don't worry about what's going on up here. Your spirit's fine with the Lord. And John is just saying, listen, every sin is a transgression of the law. And every transgression of the, of the law is a transgression against God himself. So how could a Christian, how could a believer just keep on going in that and think it's okay? It just doesn't make logical sense. And John is just cutting to the chase here. If you sin, it's a transgression, plain and simple. But not only is sin incompatible with the law of God, but it's also incompatible with the work of Christ. And that's what he's going to go on to say next as he kind of builds even more of this uh, argument against what the Gnostics were teaching. Verse 5, And ye know, you know, that he, that is Jesus, was manifested or revealed to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Hallelujah, what an amazing verse this is. This tells us that the perfect, sinless God was manifested or revealed in the person of Jesus Christ to take away our sins, take away our sins, take away our sins. That's very good news. God the Son left His glory to put on flesh, get humiliated, beaten, ridiculed, and crucified. Why? Because you and I have sinned. And we need this sin gone if we're going to live in heaven with Him. God will not allow anyone with sin into heaven. And so Jesus was manifested to take away those sins so that when we go to heaven or when we stand before God, he will let us into heaven. There's a, there's a story one pre old preacher tells about a little girl in, in old England. And this little girl, he was out on the street and he saw this little girl walking home and she was carrying a, uh, a little jar of milk to bring home to her, her mother and as she was walking, she drops the jar of milk, and it breaks and shatters. And she, the little girl begins to weep and cry. So he kneels down and says, oh, my goodness, it's okay. It'll be okay. And she says, no, it's not going to be okay. You don't realize my mom is going to beat me for this. And he said, oh, I'm sure your mom will understand. It's okay. No, my mom's going to beat me. So he's trying to figure out what he ought to do here. He said, well, let me help you see if we can piece some of this back together and, and uh, make it still work. So he gets down there and tries, and she stops crying for a minute as he is helping her. But then he, he realizes it's not going to happen, and as he just kind of gives up, she begins to cry again. She's going to beat me. Finally, he just says, you know what I'm going to do? That's it. I'm, 
come with me. And he grabs her and takes her to the store. And he goes in and buys a brand new jar for her. And then he goes and he gets uh, milk and has milk put in that jar. And he brings it home. And he said, now, do you think your mom will beat you for this? And she said, no, this is a better jar than we had before. And she went home. That is what Jesus comes to do for you and me. We have a broken life. We have sin. We are unable to fix it. And the only way for us to be able to not be punished is for God to step in and take away our sins. He has to step in and fix the situation. He has to give us a new life that's better than the life that he gave before. Jesus came to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. If Once he takes that sin away, there's no sin left to punish. And, but I want to... And I want to say something here. So this means the person who's trusted in Christ will stand before God someday. And God will let that person into heaven. Because the punishment has been, t- has been taken care of by Jesus. He took them away. He took the sins away. I notice a lot of Christian songs these days talk about freedom in Christ. But let me clarify what that is supposed to mean from Scripture. When we sing about liberty or we sing about freedom in Christ... Here's what we're talking about, that Jesus came to take away our sins. That is freedom. Freedom from the punishment of sin. Freedom from the power and the chains of sin. In fact, that's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 8 when he said, the truth shall set you free. He's talking about the chains of sin that were binding people. And once Jesus releases those chains, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer enslaved to the power and the punishment of sin. This is what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus taking away our sins. The Gnostics, though, but here's the kicker. The Gnostics were basically telling people, sin doesn't matter, and you could sin as much as you want. And some people today might start thinking that. They might start thinking, since Jesus took my sin, then, then I guess I can just do whatever I want. That's not the point John's making here, and we'll see that in a minute. But if you take just a minute here to think about this logic that John's in, think about this. Just take a minute to think about the cross and what he's saying here. You'll see that sin doesn't make sense for a Christian. See, the cross, if we look at the cross and we see that he takes away sins, the the cross pictures to us that sin is extremely serious to God. So serious is sin that Jesus had to die. Sin is no light thing. So what's the logical conclusion that we would come to if we understand sin is just this huge thing that caused God to leave his glory, come down to earth, be punished for our sins on the cross? What's the conclusion? The conclusion is to participate in that sin. It would be like participating in the very thing that killed Jesus. Listen to one of the most memorable Charles Virgin quotes I think I've ever heard. He said this, Oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimsoned with his blood? If my, I made a friend of the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? 
Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? See, when you really understand what it, what it means that he was made manifest to take away our sins, you cannot love sin. You cannot. The cross demonstrates that living in Christ and living in sin cannot coexist. And that's, he further explains that argument to the Gnostics next. And notice the end of the verse, as, and that's how he leads into this next conclusion, and that is, in him is no sin. That is, in Jesus is no sin. On the cross, all sin was on Jesus, but there was no sin in Jesus. This is an important doctrine, okay? This, that Christ is, was perfect and is perfect. And that leads to the next verse, as he said, in him was no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, at first glance, it looks like this verse is saying that a Christian will never sin. But we know that's not what John is saying. How do we know that? Because he made that already very clear in the first chapter of the same book. First John chapter 1, he's, in verse 8, he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John wouldn't say the exact opposite thing that he just said a few chapters earlier. Certainly not what he's doing. Here's something to remember, and this is very important when we talk about this passage here. The verbs related to sin here are all in the present tense. That is, it's indicating continuous action, habitual action. John's not referring to occasional acts of sin or of sinful you know, behavior. But this is continual patterns. Uh, it's a lifestyle of sin. It's an attitude that doesn't want anything to do with righteousness, really, and is stuck in that sin and has no desire to leave. S someone paraphrased this verse this way. Everyone who abides in Christ does not have a pattern of sin in his life. We're not saying that, uh, we're not saying that uh, not, no sin it means you're going to go to heaven again. All we're saying is, if you are a believer and you're abiding in Christ, then the, rea the, the fruit of that will be a life that is righteous, a life that uh, opposes sin and is not in a pattern of sin in the life. When you get saved, you're recreated. You're recreated to be an obedient new person to the word of God. Follow Christ, reject temptations, and display a whole new set of fruit in your life. And if that isn't happening... And it's possible that things are wh like what they say in the last part of this verse. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Here's how this works for many people. Uh, let me give an example here. Let's say there's a man that loses his temper a lot, okay? He's always losing his temper, getting angry at everybody. Then he becomes a Christian. He gets saved. He asks Jesus to come in. Well, all of a sudden, there's something new in him. And as a Christian, he finds that now, every time he loses his temper, he feels horrible. He feels worse than he's ever felt before. He feels more like a sinner than he's ever felt. All of a sudden, because now there's a new seed in him. And that's what John says to do back in 1 John chapter 1. Remember what he said, confess. So confess your sins. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive those sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So that Christ, new Christian confesses that sin, he accepts forgiveness, and he moves on. And he seeks to get rid of the sin in his life. And gradually, over time, 
God's working on this anger issue. And as this man abides in Christ, those temper flare-ups are going to begin to happen less and less and less and less. This is how a person, this is how God changes a person. God has done this so many times. I remember, uh, I remember my grandfather telling me so many stories. He was a first-generation Christian, and the uh, Lord just saved him out of a life of wickedness. And he just began to slowly uh, ask God to change his life. And pretty soon, day by day by day, it happened. And God just worked on him. He became a pastor, and you, and you know, that's my dad's dad, and of course he's a pastor. And he changed our whole family tree because of something, him just giving his life to Christ. Knowing Christ, understanding his work, should result in a radical change in someone's life. We don't, it's not that we don't sin anymore or we, that we're going to be sinless. It's about sinning less. And God wants more and more by the, as we progress to have less sin in our life. And that's really what John is talking about. So how could you say that uh, it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter what we do. No, God is very clear that sin is serious and we ought to be doing it less. But John wants to nail this point home, so he continues on. And he says sin basically is incompatible with the the child of God. You can't be a child of God and be loving sin. Little children, he says, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Again, we're in this same uh, vein of, uh, of argument here that John is bringing out. If you're, if you're saved, there's going to be fruit of righteousness in your life. So he starts off by saying, though, little children. Again, he says this often, as we've been talking about. John, but I want to point out, by saying little children, John is confident in the people he's writing to, to be able to call them his children, meaning they're children of God. He's confident that they know Jesus. He's not saying you're unsaved. No, he's just saying, little children, listen to what I'm saying and don't be deceived by this other teaching. Because sometimes, and he might say it this way, little children, because sometimes little children get led astray by deceivers. They're led astray because, why do, why do children get led astray? Because of their trusting nature. They believe everybody. They'll believe anything you say. The apostle is saying, don't do that. I see danger in these deceptive teachings over here, and I'm telling you, don't let them deceive you. And we're Christians, and we Christians can't be, uh, can't be deceived. and We can't be like little children. The problem, you know, we humans have is that we often look at the wrong thing when we're trying to assess error in someone. What we tend to do is we look at the personality of the teacher and not the character or not the things that are being said. I'm sure that's why John had to say this. He probably had to say this because the Gnostics were very savvy people, I'm sure. And there were a few of them, I'm sure, in the church that were just very, uh, very winsome. And just because somebody has a good personality, be very, very careful. Now, I hesitate to say this, but let me, I'm gonna be wi- I want everybody to be wise with me and understand what I'm saying on this point right here. I remember... A while back, one listening to one really eloquent preacher who was peddling a false doctrine, but he made it sound so good, and I wanted to believe it. 
after listening to his message. But someone pointed out to me, and I couldn't always put my finger on what was going on in, in there, but man, there was just something that wasn't sitting right, but it was so engaging, and I was being drawn in. I could feel it. But someone pointed out something to me that I hadn't realized. Throughout his message, now understand what I'm saying here, please. Throughout his message, he would say, he would be preaching, and he would say, he would go for a little bit, and he'd say, amen, as a question to everybody, to get everybody to say, amen. So, amen, you know, I, I'm a preacher, preacher, preaching, amen, amen. Now, I've heard preachers do that, and I'm sure I've done that before, too, and that's not a bad thing to do. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. The problem was, he was saying it 20, 30, 40 times in one message, throughout his message. Somebody pointed out, out to me, and, I, and again, it's not always a bad thing to get people you know, awake, because you might be falling asleep on me, and I need to say that sometime. Amen. But <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but when it's excessive, it's almost like he's getting people to buy in as he's talking. It's a method. I'm talking, 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 amen? And you, you are forced to say amen. You just say it before you realize it, and you're already agreeing. I agree, I agree, amen. That's what amen means. I agree, I'm with you. And, and so there's, there was that. Now, I don't know all of that. That's just something somebody pointed out, and I thought, man, that is interesting. The point is, be careful. John here, the Apostle John, didn't, didn't need gimmicks. He's just saying it straight. Here's the truth. Here's what Jesus has given to us as truth. Take it or leave it. Let's look at these verses. I'm going to read 7 through 10 all together, if you will follow along with me, please. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So again, we have to really make sure that we're keeping our thinking caps on here and realizing, again, John is making just a similar point that he has been making. He's just, he's just backing up all that he's already said. He's not saying that Christians are sinless or that they will be sinless on this earth, but he is saying we should sin less. And here's the idea of this passage. God puts everyone here, as you see, in one of two groups, every person. You're either a children of the dev- child of the devil or you're a child of God. And you're in one of, th- one of the two groups. And these verses lay out the difference between those two. Those with the seed of God will live righteous lives. But the children of the devil will not. And it's just how it is. And it might sound harsh to say something like that or to say that someone who is living in a pattern of sin and all of that is a child of the devil. But you know, that's something that John actually heard the most loving person who ever lived say. He heard Jesus say these very things. If you would like to go go to John chapter 8, I want to show you a quick passage here. Jesus himself was talking to a group of Jews who were already very, very angry with him. And that's important to this passage. And when you have a group of people about ready to kill you, 
Make sure you pray before you say something like Jesus is about to say right now, okay? Make sure, Lord, do you really want me to say this? Jesus knew he could say it. <clears throat> Here's what he says. They answered and said unto him, Abraham, this is the Jews, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus went straight to the point with these guys. It was, uh, he was done <laughs> with all the little fancy talk and all the little things they were trying to, to say. The point is, that their sinful behavior all stemmed from their family allegiance. That was the devil. They were children of the devil. And the devil has been sinning since the beginning, as it says in verse 8 there, chapter 3, verse 8, 1 John. They've been sinning since the beginning. Most likely that's a reference to the doctrine that Satan was an angel who rebelled against God in time past. And since that moment, he has been, there has been nothing but sin from him and destruction and lies and that's what Jesus even said. He is the father of lies. You can guarantee it. Every time the devil opens his mouth, it's a lie. No matter what he's saying, no matter how sweet he might sound. But in verse 8, it says, God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Another reason for the coming of Christ. For the believer, Christ has conquered the power of the devil in that person's life, in that believer's life. We don't have to obey the devil. We're no longer his child. Have you ever heard a little child say to another little child, I don't have to obey you. You're not my dad. You know, I've heard little kids, I'm, you're not my dad. Well, that's what you can say to the devil. Anytime he tries to get you to do something, I don't have to obey you. You're not my dad. I'm obeying my dad. My dad is Jesus. My dad is the father. And I, I, have, I do not have to obey you. But see, a child, child of the devil, he's, he's trapped in it. And he will obey the devil. When Jesus died, he rose and died and rose from the dead. It was triumph over death and triumph over the devil and all the works of the devil. That The devil was uh, tempting people to sin and had people trapped in sin and then would uh, take and punish them for that sin someday. But then here, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, here's what God tells us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood... He also himself likewise took part of the same, that's God coming down, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. He destroyed the power of death uh, that the devil had, destroyed the works of the devil. The works of the devil have been destroyed in a believer's life. He has no power over you if you're saved. The cross also guaranteed that there will be a day coming when that will all be completely finished entirely finished, and the devil will be completely done. 
But John's big point for these precious people in his church was that the truth will lead you to a life of holiness and not sin. You will, he that is born of God and has the seed of, seed of God will not sin. You cannot live in a, in a habitual, continual lifestyle, unrepentant sin. You just will never be happy in that. It will, if you're a, a child of God, it will lead you into righteousness. So the questions for the Gnostics was, does your teaching, Gnostics, lead to holiness? Does your teaching lead to holiness? What a great question. So many of these cults and false religions these days don't lead to godliness. They lead to fleshly lust, and that's a great test. Now let me remind us before we end here that there is a difference between somebody who's living in a continuous lifestyle of sin, unrepentant, and then someone who has a sin habit that they're trying to break. They're still a born-again Christian, still love Jesus, but there's just something in them that they're trying to break. This whole thing that we're talking about really comes down to a person's heart attitude about sin. A child of God has a new heart, and he can't be happy living in sin. He's fighting sin all the time. He understands that I'm in this to win this. A child of the devil has a sinful heart, so there's no fight in the heart. No desire to change, really. They might see some benefits to doing some things better, but ultimately they want to just do what they want to do. So here's a great question I have for all of us here as we close, and that is, am I in the fight? Am I in the fight? If you're fighting sin, then that's a good sign. That's a good thing. That means Jesus is in there. He's helping you. And there's so many things in Scripture, you know, you Take the armor of God that Paul talked about. That's all about fighting sin. Only a Christian understands that. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. Only a Christian can really understand what this all means. But if there's no fight in you, and you're done, you're just going to do what you want to do, that's not good. That's not good. Perhaps the most famous Christian song that's ever been written was written by someone whose life was all about this dramatic change that Jesus brings. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. A change, a difference. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton Here's what's written on John Newton's gravestone. And this is a gravestone that he designed. This is what he wanted written on his gravestone. It says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. (laughs) Amazing man, many of you know his story, enslaved himself, really, as a, as a boy. Taken onto a ship, and uh, for five years, he was just raised on an, uh, as a wicked young person on a ship. Soon he became a first mate on a slave ship himself, and he was capturing and bringing slaves to England. Horrible. One night, during a storm at sea, he cried out. He cried out for God to save him. He was sick of all that he had seen in his life, and he knew, he knew, he could sense, he could feel the sin that was weighing him down. 
And he cried out, and Jesus transformed him miraculously. He never lost the wonder then after that of the amazing grace that God extended to him. He went on to become just a, a great minister for the Lord in England there and fought against uh, slavery. In fact, he was instrumental in helping William Wilberforce in his fight. He, he sought to live a life that pleased the Savior. But soon before he died, John Newton is known to have said this to a friend. He said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. <laughs> because of his new life in Jesus, he became a new man, a totally new man. And all of us ought to sense that change. All of us ought to feel that, that we are different. Because Jesus has saved us, and Jesus is in us. We have the seed of God, and we need to stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that, Jesus, you have...